I am grateful to Rabbi Dan Judson from the Rabbinical School at Hebrew College, Professors Lorna Rivera and Rajani Srikanth from UMass Boston, and President Sarah Turner from North Bennett Street School for joining us tonight to discuss the enormous question, what qualifies as knowledge and how is it transmitted? Um, based on our conversation in the green room earlier, I think we're all in for a treat um, and some good intellectual philosophical discussion tonight. In the interest of giving our panelists as much of our time this evening as possible, I refer you to your program for their bios and information about the schools that they represent and invite you to join me in welcoming them to the Athenaeum. Should we start? Um, I think we're supposed to use the mic, right? Because you're recording this conversation, yes. Um, so let me introduce myself again. I'm Rajani Srikanth, and I am going to serve as the moderator of sorts of this evening's conversation. Um, Hannah mentioned to you that we are trying to grapple with a really large question. You know, what constitutes knowledge and how is it transmitted? And because that's such a huge question, and I'm sure each of us has our own particular entry into that question, I thought I would just start this conversation by perhaps bringing in two, I don't want to call them incidents or events, but really sort of two areas that are of interest to me and that actually touch on this issue of what constitutes knowledge or what constitutes essential knowledge and how is it transmitted or how should it be transmitted. Um, so the first, um, the first issue that I want to raise is about the Japanese-American internment. I'm assuming that most everybody knows about it. So this was um, certainly um, the historical rounding up of about 120,000 persons of Japanese descent in the United States after the bombing of Pearl Harbor um, in December 1941. And um, at the time, there was no evidence to suggest that um, the people of Japanese descent, two-thirds of whom were citizens of the United States, were in any way um, not loyal to the country. Uh, in fact, there was a report that actually argued precisely that they were very loyal to the country. Um, and yet, that report was suppressed, and we know that um, um, our government, uh, with uh, President Roosevelt's executive order, did intern 120,000 um, Japanese Americans. Many, many years later, in 1988, the, um, the country recognized that it had made a grave mistake and the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 um, was passed to acknowledge what was actually recognized as an act of racism and wartime hysteria. And the government, our government, has made its only formal official apology to the Japanese Americans in our history. As part of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, uh, three things uh, were sort of agreed upon. The first of this was that every surviving internee would receive $20,000 as a compensation for what they had lost when they had been, you know, summarily sort of whisked away to the internment camps. And the second provision was that um, 
some money would be set aside for a public education fund so that uh, public schools could include in their curricula the, um, the very egregious act of having interned 120,000 persons of Japanese descent. Now, there was a very small amount of money that was set, set aside for this public education fund. It was $5 million. And so you can only sort of guess at just how extensively this issue was covered in public school curricula. And the way that some of us who teach um, about you know, Asian American studies or Japanese American studies sort of became aware of this, that the public school education mandate had not been adequately fulfilled and in fact is not yet adequately fulfilled is that we often get students in our classrooms, um, in our university classrooms, who will say, I never knew about this. How is it that I did not know about this? And some of them react with great anger. Why was I never taught about this? So I sort of just bring that up because it's pretty obvious um, that knowledge is not always readily available. It is made available by those who have the power to make it available or the power to withhold it, right? So that's sort of one thing I wanted to raise. And when we're thinking about what constitutes essential knowledge, we may want to think about, well, who decides what constitutes essential knowledge? The second thing I want to talk about is um, South Africa because I just happen to, um, I love the country because it is a very recent democracy. It's a new democracy, as you know. It um, was released from its apartheid rule in 1994. And um, citizens of South Africa, black South Africans, during apartheid rule were given only a very limited form of knowledge. They received only that much knowledge that would be required for them to be good laborers and domestic servants, for the most part. I mean, people that we hear about, like Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki and you know, Govan Mbeki and Walter Sisulu, these were all people who actually received an education in British missionary schools. And so they did not, they were not subject to the limitations of ordinary black South Africans. So when South Africa became a democracy, suddenly, there was an, sort of a glaring gap between what white South Africans knew and were educated in and what black South Africans knew and were educated in. Um, and where this links up with the knowledge that one needs to realize one's essential and full humanity is when South Africa, at the time of its transition to democracy also got hit with the HIV AIDS crisis. So at the time, um, most, it was black South Africans who were primarily uh, suffering from the disease of AIDS. And um, very soon they realized that they were fighting for their life and they needed to mobilize knowledge. So activists from the United States went to South Africa, activists from the organization ACT UP and Action AIDS went to South Africa and educated black South Africans who had received maybe no more than a fourth or fifth or sixth grade education, educated them in the biomedical knowledge of the disease, what it was doing to their bodies, but they were very clear that this was not the only knowledge they were receiving. They were receiving knowledge of how to be full and active citizens, how to challenge their government to live up to its own 
stated ideals in the Constitution. I mean, I don't know if you know that South African Constitution is one of the most progressive in the world and the most comprehensive in the world. And yet, the very same party that had liberated black South Africans from apartheid, the African National Congress, was not delivering on its own ideals. And so hundreds and thousands of black South Africans taught themselves about AIDS and taught themselves how to be citizens who demanded from their government. And so there again, you see how knowledge becomes democratized and knowledge becomes essential to pursuing democracy. And I'll just leave it at that and turn to our panelists to pick up and give us their wisdom. So shall we start with you, Sarah? Sure, I, I sort of have a feeling that I'm gonna uh, suddenly be like a, a harsh non sequitur because as I'm listening to you I'm trying and thinking about the, the knowledge that I think about in my working life and in my educational life um, one of the things that strikes me about your comment is how much it's about access to knowledge and who's allowed um, access to it and also I think in, in the field that I come from and I come from a field um, I was trained as a metalsmith and a jeweler and I now work at the North Bennett Street School so we're a craft and trade school so we're teaching knowledge in a very, very practical, hands-on, skill-based way, and those are the fields that I come out of. Um, and one of the things I think about a lot is who gets access to any kind of knowledge, and in my case, who gets ask, access to skill building? Um, because I think one of the things that your story illustrates is how much knowledge is, of course, power and agency. And no matter what type of knowledge that is, that's critical for self-fulfillment and self-mobility and access. Um, and my field just happens to do it in a very different way. So um, I had the good fortune to come to the exhibition opening um, and was posed just sort of naturally by looking at the exhibition about if I had to choose books from my own field or books from my school that would represent a body of knowledge, what a compelling problem that is to have to do that, to think about what is the most important. And so I kind of toggled in my mind from having once been in art and design schools where knowledge was so much, um, the art was often conveying the knowledge of another subject. So art would often be referring to the knowledge of philosophy or the knowledge of religion or the knowledge of nature and um, paintings and sculpture and contemporary artists' ideas would sort of be in service many times to another form of knowledge or another body of knowledge. And I always regretted in a way that art students couldn't find the knowledge that was sort of inherent to their own field to give them agency in their own field, but they were looking always to philosophy or they were looking to literature or they were looking to language. And um, that was something we always used to wrestle with. And so. Moving now to a place that works in a very different way. We don't work by analogy. We're very practical. We're craft and we're trade. Um, there's a way in which there isn't a looking to, of course, we're looking at history. Of course, we're looking at design. Of course, we're looking at use. But there's a way in which I find the knowledge just very, very straightforward. It's not a translation of anything. And this has been sort of refreshing to me. I, I confess I brought a couple of visual aids because um, when I was at a graduate school uh, giving an MFA program, we were reading things like the object reader and it's um, historical and philosophical and sociocultural analysis of objects. We were reading things like Glenn Adamson's Thinking Through Craft, which is um, 
again, really thinking of as craft as a vehicle for other ideas. But one of the things I've always loved is just the, sort of the straightforward. And so some of the books that I would think I would put in my shelf would be, this is a sheet pattern drafting manual. So if you want to make duct work, these are the patterns. And it's got really sophisticated geometries and proportions and a sense of how to build and make. And this is a beautiful pipe fitter's guide from, a steam fitter's guide from um, 1926. The GEN is just, um, incredible um, diagrams and very direct kind of how-to. And so I think I'm just reflecting these days on even just a sh subtle shift of position or field suddenly shifts all of your perspective around kind of how the knowledge serves you or, or how you'll be able to access it towards your aims. Anyway, um, very different, which is what I love about this panel, but that, those are some of my entry points. Great. Thank you. That's great. My my father is a sheet metal worker, so I love it. He used to make like dust pans out of metal. Oh, I love it. All kinds of things around our house in metal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm going to touch a little bit. I also brought on visual, but I'll, I'll pass it on in a minute. Um, I I approached this um, based on um, my work with teachers. I, I'm a school board member for the Boston Public Schools and um, have, prior to joining the school committee, um, I've been doing a lot of professional development um, for the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education on ethnic studies and how we, you know, how, what, what the research shows, um, you know, having exposure to ethnic studies and how that builds resiliency in our youth. And it's often not taught in, in second, in, you know, in high schools um, or in elementary schools. And it's often at the university level where our students will often, you know, be exposed to uh, some of this knowledge that affects their ancestors and their, and their present day communities. Um, so this morning, I actually, um, I got my, my MTA, my Massachusetts Teachers Association <laughs> newsletter, and the, actually it's about literary diversity. And, and it's an Asian-American teacher talking about how he uses uh, Sandra Cisneros' House on Mango Street, which is the book that I really wanted everyone to have. You know? <laughs> um, and so it really, I really, I was struck by just the, how, how it's so relevant to, to this evening. And I just wanted to read about um, what we often do with teachers is, you know, we, again, we talk about diversity in literature and teachers as creators of knowledge, as well as the students as creators of knowledge, and having our teachers really uh, identify their biases, um, that, that privileged um, mindset that they have, and, and, and again, this Western epistemology that still is very much reflected in our, in our school curriculum. Um, and, and I wanted to, um, again, sh uh, just read a statement here because one of the authors that we often look at is um, Bishop's writing about, you know, windows and mirrors. Um, and she talks about how um, books are, 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 books are sometimes windows, offering views of worlds that may be real or imagined, familiar or strange. When lighting conditions are just right, however, a window can also be a mirror. Literature transforms human experience and reflects it back to us. And in that reflection, we can see our own lives and experiences as part of the larger human experience. 
And this is something, again, that, um, you know, has touched me personally. Um, my family's from Puerto Rico or immigrants from Puerto Rico. Um, I never had any Latino studies um, throughout my education. Um, I had a, my first Puerto Rican professor was when I was a senior in college. Um, and, and I was studying to be a teacher. And this is what just, you know, learning and reading a book about Puerto Rico was like mind blowing to me. Because even the curriculum in Puerto Rico is English only. It's the US official curriculum um, because Puerto Rico is, is still a colony of the United States. And I know that's a political statement to make, but um, it is. And, um, and so it's so important for my work, and I just want to hand out something um, that we can maybe go back to later, uh, which is something that you know, we often talk about with our teachers, um, if you want to split it to go this way too. Um, that again, that this idea that you know, there's a dominant Western epistemologies and ways of knowing and that we still, in our curriculum and in the choices that teachers make, um, there's still a mindset that um, of invisibility as well of voices of people of color, and um, and that's something that you know. Again, I'm trying to really work with our teachers on shifting from this white gaze, right, to a, an inward, forward-thinking gaze. So I'm not going to go over this whole thing, but um, just wanted to. Again, stress that um, it's very powerful and transformative for our youth when um, they are able to see their experiences reflected in the curriculum. And I also work with the Hyde Square Task Force, which is a community-based or an arts-based youth organization in Jamaica Plain. Um, and we had a Mass Humanities grant where the 65 youth studied um, folk tales from all over the world, and then they created their own folk tale. I don't know if anyone saw the Raices play. Did anyone? Oh, it was great. But so the the youth um, from the music club, from the art, from the theater club, and from um, uh, the dance club used a folk tale, like a blended folk tale, and made a performance, a musical called Raices. And that, again, was just sort of the embodiment to me of really this work, where they were able to see these folk tales from around the world, but craft one that, that really spoke to their experiences. Um, and so, yeah, I can give more examples of how we're, we're trying to do this in practical terms, but, um, but we still have a long way to go <laughs> in terms of also having an assets-based approach Right to working with with our learners, particularly English learners, and um, you know, and really just seeing that uh, people that are bilingual, um, you know, are brilliant. Um, they their brain their brains are wired differently, and and there are Google. There's bilinguals are smarter. Yes, they are. <laughs> uh, but really having that mindset that many of our teachers um, make assumptions as well about what our students know, and also hierarchies of knowledge, right, about where they learn their culture and their stories from their families, but then not to see that reflected in their, in their everyday practices, you know, outside of the home, um, you know, can be, um, you know, can, can really hurt these students, actually. There's a sort of a form of, of trauma there, 
Um, and there's been a lot of attention paid to racial trauma now in education, and that's something maybe we can, we can go back to. But thank you for letting me share some of that. Great. Um, this, <laughs> we've got four different, uh, this is going to be a, just a totally different, yeah, so I'm just going to roll with it, although I'm not, I'd lo you know, I'm not adjusting it um, and not following on directly from what you said, but there's a lot, there's certainly a lot there. Um, I just want to say a word of just thank you for, I, this is such an amazing uh, place. Um, I, 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 um, I um, tell my kids I raise them in two religions. They're, you know, they're Jewish and they're also readers. And there's a lot of overlap in those religions. Um, I'm, I'm a firm uh, adherent to both of those religions. And when I come to a place like this, it's sort of like a pilgrimage to a religious institution of like the best, awesome, most awesome religious place. So um, I, this is, uh, uh, thank you so much for, for having I mean, so um, uh, the assignment of finding 10 books that, um, with essential books that defined Hebrew college, just to say a word about, um, we're, it's a grad, uh, we're, uh, the institution I represent is in Newton Center, it's a graduate school for people studying to be rabbis as well as people getting um, uh, higher degrees, masters and doctorates in Jewish education. Um, and the process of asking um, uh, me and, by extension, my faculty, which I passed this along to, to find 10 books that they could agree on, um, which represented <laughs> Judaism as like, you know, it just hit the button of argue, which is not a hard button for, like, to find in our school, but this was, like, so easy, so it engendered quick and, of course, many um, arguments. But um, I guess I would say that uh, the books we um, came to and the way we thought about um, and knowledge, and it certainly you know, touches on um, canon, which is what, one of the things you're raising. What is the canon upon which we're teaching um, uh, kids? And for my case, it's what, what's the canon um, which we feel like represents Jewish tradition. Um, uh, the sort of philosophically, the um, Enlightenment um, represents a sort of this radical shift um, in the way that faith traditions and Judaism in particular are um, understand the nature of knowledge and truth and truth claims. Um, and so we are represented, our 10 books are books that are kind of pre-enlightenment and post-enlightenment. So we've got the Bible, as is seemingly appropriate for, uh, um, and we've got a, a volume of Talmud in Aramaic, um, which is um, a traditional, one of the, the traditional um, uh, uh, pathway of Jewish knowledge, book that one studies to attain Jewish knowledge. It's a written, edited somewhere between 600 and 800 um, uh, CE. Um, but um, the Enlightenment raises questions about the reception of truth and um, things like biblical criticism, the notion that the Bible is not the divinely ordained word of God, raises all sorts of difficult truth claims, um, and much of the liberal religious tradition post-enlightenment is about trying to bring together um, the world of faith and the world of reason. And um, although um, we're a few hundred years after the enlightenment, um, we very much, it's still the same question about how one can dance at two weddings, as it were. How can one dance at both the wedding of, of rational truth claims post-enlightenment and dance at the wedding of faith? So are my books, the 10 books, 
um, are, some of them are pre-enlightenment, as I mentioned. The post-enlightenment books, um, we have um, a book written by a founder of my school, Art Green. The title will give away much. It's called Radical Judaism. Um, and it is a book about um, the environmental crisis. And it's a book about um, the sort of essentially kind of neo-mystic. It's the essential oneness of, um, of humanity. And if you asked, and it is at the same time a book deeply rooted in, um, in traditional sources. Um, we have another book called The Particulars of Rapture, written by a woman named Aviva Zornberg, um, both reflecting uh, our, our real need for to opening up what would be a canon to, um, to women uh, as well as men. And Aviva Zornberg is in Israel considered one of the great liberal teachers of um, of Judaism. She comes from a psychoanalytic lens, so it is a combination psychoanalytic, deeply literary, and complete knowledge of all of Jewish tradition applied to um, both the Bible and questions of knowledge and who we are as human beings. Um, and so um, I guess I would say our, what we are attempting to, or, or sort of as we come to this question, as I come to this question of knowledge, it is about how in a post-enlightenment broadly world, um, we make truth claims that are have meaning um, in our in the said world we live in, and yet uh, you can find a direct line to tracing them back to um, uh, sort of pre-modern origins. So, how do you kind of create um, uh, this sense of um, how do you create a sense of meaning? Um, and I guess knowledge as meaning as opposed to knowledge as truth is one of the ways I think this question has changed. Um, and it's that, that sort of tethering to tradition while understanding at the same time that we don't, ex or from where I'm coming from, we don't accept it as revealed truth anymore. Um, but yet there's still a truth claim that we respond to. And so our bookshelf, I want to say, is one argument um, of 10 books that are, are a sort of arguing and touching on each other, um, all of which making the claim that this is Judaism, even while they might um, contradict each other in some significant and substantial ways. But not surprisingly, the, I guess I, I say not surprisingly for those of you who are passingly familiar with Judaism, I would say argument is, <laughs> is what those 10 books are about um, more than anything. I want to just pick up on something I think we were talking about earlier, which probably has great relevance to everyone here. Um, and you touched a little bit about it, you know, knowledge as um, meaning or knowledge as truth. Um, we also have, as you know, information and we have facts, we think. Um, we're also suspicious of things that parade as the only facts. I mean, one of the things that has happened in a postmodernist world is that we tend to question master narratives, right? We, um, we're very careful not to claim that a particular truth is the only truth. But postmodernism can also lead to a kind of relativism that doesn't get us to appreciate that there are some things that are not to be questioned. And I want to throw that out there, even as I'm hesitant to do that, because um, what some of us may deem to be non-negotiable, others might say, 
they're absolutely, you know, um, up for interrogation. So I, I want to talk about how do we, how do we wrestle with knowledge that uh, destabilizes what we consider to be non-negotiable knowledge for us? How do we not embrace, but how do we engage knowledge that comes to us or meaning that comes to us that someone presents to us that at first blush appears to threaten what we, that which we hold dear? And I'd like to you know, ask the panelists maybe to, to respond to that question because faith is something that is so deeply rooted. Um, when our faith is uh, challenged, even mildly, um, we react. We tend to, uh, to take refuge in that which is familiar. Um, you know, Lorna, you spoke about uh, breaking up the canon and, I mean, we, we both know how in the 70s and 80s that was a difficult thing to do, right? Because there was a sense of threat by those who held the canon very dear. Right? And what I wanted to ask you, Sarah, is, you know, are there ways of doing craft that have been handed down, you know, through the generations, but that are now being, I wouldn't say questioned, but certainly new ways of doing things that... Uh, pay credence to tradition, but also depart from it. And how does that feel to, to you, who are perhaps um, the keeper of the tradition, but also want to open it up to other influences? So this tension between that which we hold dear and that which is presented to us as new knowledge. I mean, this is, I mentioned earlier that I came from a, school most recently that was a, a, a contemporary art and design school. And now I'm at a craft and trade school. And this is, um, this is one of the great tensions, exactly what you point to here, because craftspeople and tradespeople will have a very um, direct and convinced way of doing a certain thing, a way of making something, a way a technique has to be, the way the proportions have to be. There is um, not as much creative license taken. Um, and I'm speaking, you know, I'm exaggerating, of course. And from an artist's point of view, creative license is everything. And so it doesn't matter if, if things are ill-proportioned. And in fact, the better you can stray from conventions or traditions or histories, the better. And um, irreverence is the point. And um, I remember um, as a young metalsmith, I was talking to my mentor. And I felt that I needed to learn how to do a process. It was an enameling process at that time. I felt that I needed to learn the process really, really, really well and perfectly before I could um, circumvent the process or before I could take artistic license. And, and he said to me, Sarah, why do you think that you have to be good before you can be bad? <laughs> and, um, it, you know, but I felt that I, that I had to have the foundation, the truth, the right way, the rigor in order to then take creative license. And happily, I mean, I don't mean to equivocate on your question, but happily those things can exist simultaneously, that you have the understanding and the rigor and the foundation and the commitment and the value, and then you also know that you have got to rupture that, that you cannot accept that whole cloth all the time, and that you have to 
um, be critical of it and you have to challenge it and you have to look at what your own authorship will bring or what others' authorship will bring. So that's sort of how I think about that question. Yeah. Um, so I think about it as well. You know, there's this controversy right now over one of Oprah's books, um, the American Dirt novel. And, you know, it's really struck me about this question of, um, you know, um, insider and outsider knowledge and which is the valid way of knowing. Um, and even, yeah, so I haven't read it, um, but there's, there's a lot of crit, uh, criticism over um, this novel. It's about, um, an immigrant woman's journey. Um, she, she, you know, for, for example, she's raped, and she, you know, there's a drug cartel, and and it sort of represents, um, you know, like all of the stereotypical elements of an immigrant's journey. And but it wasn't written by a Latina, um, and it is. I don't know. Maybe maybe there's one book out of all of Oprah's that has been a Latino author. So it's also about representation. Um, now, there have been so many wonderful books written, right, about others that don't share that culture or that experience, and that's that creativity. Um, so I just invite you all to kind of look at some of the reviews and, and think about it. But I, I have to say as well that I, you know, I tend to lean more towards that insider knowledge. Um, that organic intellectual really knowing um, through their experience. And, but we don't often validate that. We, we often want the expert knowledge that is sort of, you know, gained from outside. Um, and even as a, as a sociologist who's done ethnography, right, you know, we have levels of engagement in in doing field work, whether you're an observer, participant, or a participant observer. And, you know, dealing with whether we're biased in, in doing this work. Um, so I, it just strikes me about, again, this question about insider, outsider knowledge, which is factual. How can we, who are outsiders, learn, you know, from, from those experiences? And that's, that's my challenge in working with mostly white or non-Latino teachers work who te are teaching primarily in schools that are Latino majority, you know, how do we balance that? And how do we, you know, have respect and tolerance and but yet still push a little bit to say, you know, can we, you know, validate this type of knowledge, the insider knowledge and give voice to that? Um, and yeah, that's been it's another thought about how, again, the literary piece of diversity in, in literature, um, you know, there's so many other areas of, of life and especially in academe, you know, where that insider-outsider knowledge is, is always like in, in tension. I've forgotten the original question, but I, I just want to pick up on something Sarah said. And then we have the Sarah, I didn't realize that metalsmithing was so similar to what I did. Um, uh, um, so to become, a, to become a rabbi, which is much of what I do is oversee those folks. It's a five-year 
as I said, post-college program, and so long because you need to learn, many of our folks come without an, a knowledge of Hebrew and Aramaic, which are two things you need to learn before you can. And those are not easy. Aramaic in particular is not an easy language to pick up and be able to um, translate and, and work your way through. And um, the reason you need that is because the um, some of the essential books of Jewish um, tradition are written in Aramaic. And all the time, this before you can be good or bad or however you just said it, Sarah, before, I'd say once a week I'll have a student kind of in my office in some distress because they're unable to really kind of get their get their hands around Aramaic. And what they will say to me is, I know where I am going. I'm going to be a rabbi at some congregation in America. Nobody, not a single one, not a single time will it ever happen that somebody's going to walk into my office and say, translate that for me. I was I have a question about that. So why are you forcing me to learn this? And my response is not what your teacher said, it's the opposite, which is um, you have to be good before you can critique uh, in some way. You have to know this before you can critique. At least my sense is, not what we put forward, is a, is, a, is a sense that you have to have, um, uh, you have to become, um, you, have to have, you have to have gone through it um, before you've got something to say that people respond to. Um, so it is a little bit about expertiseism, which I know you're sort of critiquing to some degree. This notion of kind of expertiseism that you um, need to be, an, you know, do you need to be an insider? And from where um, I and my institution are coming from, the answer is yes. You need to be an insider who's good at it, and then then you can write something called radical Judaism and critique it all you want. But you need to have a knowledge base, um, uh, both for other people to respect what you're saying, but also and what we have found repeatedly is that if you have not gone through it and you have not become a good metalsmith, as it were, for you, but for us, um, student of Judaism, you will, for yourself, question your own authenticity to be able to make the kind of change that you probably are thinking about making in the world. Um, so we're sort of a little bit old school in terms of in praise of insiderism, in praise of um, expertiseism, um, drives my students crazy a little bit, but that is something about um, how I see it. So it looks like there's sort of strategic knowledge. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, permit me one more story about Nelson Mandela, and then I think we'll open it up for questions. So um, when Mandela was at Robben Island, you know, serving out his very long prison sentence, um, he realized that, you know, he had a lot of time to think there. He and the other leaders of the ANC. And Mandela had this absolutely um, unassailable sort of faith that he would get out someday and that black South Africans would be able to uh, be independent in their own country. But he knew that um, the Afrikaners, that is the, the white South Africans of Dutch heritage, uh, would also be there and that they would have to live together and build a society together. So he made the very strategic decision that while he was in prison, he would learn Afrikaans, the language of the Afrikaners. And partly he, you know, he, it was a very strategic move, what I would call an exhibition of strategic empathy, because he wanted to understand his 
current enemy who would be his erstwhile, you know, co-citizen. So he taught himself Afrikaans because he said, I need to know why the Afrikaner is so intent on keeping us separate. What is the insecurity in the Afrikaner mind that requires this kind of, you know, absolute differentiation between black South Africans, white South Africans, the colored South Africans. So let me understand their culture, let me understand their language, and let me try then to see if I can reach out to establish a connection. So I've always found that, you know, both at one level incredibly uh, magnanimous, but also incredibly strategic. Um, So I kind of just leave you with that.